when we first sort of realised the scale of what we had to do, I remember sitting there one day and thinking, I think he was, he was about two at the time, so I'm sitting there thinking, I've got 10 or 12 years of this, of not being able to go for a walk other than at four o'clock in the morning, not being able to go and do things. And, yeah, for, for a brief while, I didn't resent him, but I resented what it meant for my life. But in the time since then, he has shown that he is very much worth it. I mean, the last six months, he's five now. In the last six months, he has started to come on so far. I know firsthand that when you're raising a challenging, reactive or aggressive dog, that life isn't all unicorns and rainbows. But I also know that it helps to hear other people's stories. My name is Kaiser van Overbeek. And on this podcast, we share stories of the force-free training journeys of amazing dogs who are just a little rough around the edges. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Rough Around the Edges podcast. And in keeping with tradition, I'm not talking to someone within the borders of my own country. Uh, I am talking to someone who's almost kind of almost in my time zone um she's from the uk and her name is jay gurdon and i think i should kind of mention like before i ask her to introduce herself how this um recording came about because it was actually very spontaneous just yesterday somebody um posted an article on one of my favorite facebook groups um dogs with or expats with dogs in amsterdam and it was a, mag- a magazine article that Jay had written a couple of years ago. And it was about the emotional toll of having a reactive dog. And I'm just going to read the two quotes from the article so that you know like why I immediately thought, okay, got to talk to her. Um, so one of the lines in the article is, um, there are any number of articles that you can find about how to reassure and help your reactive dog. There are far, far fewer that in any way prepare you for the emotional roller coaster that is being the owner or handler of a reactive dog. And this was the first one where I thought, yep, that is it. And another quote that was in there was, um, I've cried more tears over this one dog than over any other animal I've ever had, even the ones that I've had to say permanent goodbye to. Because of Finn, so I guess now we already know the name of her dog as well, I have been patronized, pitied, sworn at, and despised. And I think both of these things are extremely recognizable um, to guardians of, as I call them, challenging dogs or dogs who are a little rough around the edges, the emotional roller coaster, the opinions um, that others give, solicited or unsolicited, and then you having to deal with all of it. So, I read that article, I got in contact with Jay and I was like, hey, do you want to tell your story on the podcast? And here we are just one day later. So long introduction, Jay, welcome Um, over to you. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about your story and your journey with Finn. Very happy to be here. Um, Finn, Like you, I don't tend to so much call them reactive dogs these days. I tend to call them complex and sensitive. 
And those two words sum up Finn so well. I have a long history with Border Collies, which is what Finn is. I come from a farming background. I'm an ex-sheep farmer. Um, and we had, well, my childhood dog was a Collie Cross. So for uh, nearly 40 years now, I've had Collies in my life. And I thought I knew them pretty well. You know, I used to train working sheepdogs. And then this puppy entered my life and I had no clue what was going on. And what inspired that article, I just remember so much those feelings of standing, holding the end of a lead. And at the other was this dog that I didn't recognize. You know, he was so loving and adorable at home. He still is. He is the biggest love bug ever with the people that he trusts. But he could not cope with so much of the outside world. I'd never encountered anything like him. Um, in hindsight, I know the signs of what was going on now, but I didn't then. He has been the catalyst for me doing more learning than I could possibly have imagined with dogs. And a huge part of writing that article was being the one standing there with all those big feelings that come with having one of these complex dogs because it's hard for the dogs but it is every bit if not at times more hard for us because we're not just having to cope with the dog struggling with their world we're having to cope with society and their opinions on us and our dogs which I think is something that is so so hard to cope with the worst thing I ever had in the entire time that I've had Finn was the man who told me that I should take my six-month-old puppy home and shoot him because he reacted. And that, that was the absolute low. Um, obviously, I would never have done it. I knew that you know, he, he's not a bad dog. They're not bad dogs. They are dogs who struggle with aspects of their world. And that is not their fault. So that's, that's what I set out to write about when I sat and wrote that article and I was very fortunate to stumble on some people who started my learning process and taught me about reactive dogs and what's going on in them how we can help them and I wanted to show more people that that kind of help and support is out there there are people that understand there are people that can help people that can give advice people if you just need to get it all off your chest and have a good cry about how really difficult it is there are people there that will do that and that was really what I set out to to communicate at the very start so how old was Finn when you wrote that article was that around that six month mark or was that after when you had had a little bit time to process everything that was going on I think I wrote the original article for my own blog and I think it was I think it was about 18 months old when I first wrote it, but the a lot of the events that I wrote about were sort of from, from the year before when he was about four to six months old, which was when it all went wrong. Um, I then, I kind of edited the article to post on the Dogs Today site. And um, that, that's when it kind of took off. 
all of a sudden it was being shared all over the place and it was quite bemusing really because you know other people that read it said you know they thought it was good and it sort of explained the whole emotional process of sharing life with these dogs uh, but I started getting messages and emails from people who just go wow you know somebody gets it somebody understands there's no need to feel you know I felt like I was the only one and I think that is one of the hardest things is that feeling of isolation. Yeah, for sure. And I just, one of the things that we just talked about really briefly before we started um, recording was that a lot of the people that I've talked about or talked to, not about, um, but talked to about their um, dogs is a lot of them think that, oh, if only, you know, like I'd had more dogs before, then I would be better equipped. And then I wouldn't have, um, you know, like between quotes, um, like messed up my dog, something like that. I myself, for example, had to deal with a little bit of um, like, you know, like my dog came from a breeder. And I just always said, you know, like, I don't have the rescue excuse, like there's no, um, I mean, right now, like, I know that there's no excuse needed. But it would be like other people would be able to say, yeah, he was abused as a puppy or came from a puppy mill, or there's all of this and that going on. And that explains it kind of as if there is a need also to explain it. And I was like, well, I don't have that excuse. Like mine came from a reputable breeder and was socialized at a young age and, um, you know, like got him as a puppy, um, all of that. Um, I'm guessing like, part of that was probably the same for you like did you get um finn as a puppy as well and yeah like- yeah he he came at eight weeks um he came from a farm which was the background that i was used to with my dogs you know we lived on farms we'd always had farm dogs in hindsight his mother was nervous but we didn't read too much into that because it's a bit simplistic to say that collies can be like that. Some collies can be quite selective about people. And we'd had a, a sort of people selective one before. So we didn't really sort of read too much into it until things started to go wrong. I mean, we had like a, a laundry list of the factors that can go into a dog developing reactive behaviours. He comes from nervous parents. He had health problems when he was a puppy which meant that we couldn't get him out and socialise him as much as we wanted to. He had um, recurrent stomach problems. So, and without very invasive testing that our vet didn't want to do, we couldn't tell whether or not it was infectious. So obviously we weren't going to take him to sort of where other dogs and other puppies were because we didn't want anyone else's dog to get sick. And that cleared up, he was probably about three and a half months. So we started trying to get him back out to see the world. Maybe might have pushed him a little bit to say hello to things. Um, And then when he was four months old, he got bitten by another dog. And that just really finished. He just, he started, he became sensitized to everything. So he started off not liking big black dogs because it was a big black dog that bit him. And over time, it became all dogs and then it started to become people with dogs and then it became people. And no matter what we tried to do, we just couldn't seem to halt it. 
and until there was a day where he he kicked off at someone who was the guy who told me to take him home and shoot him and I just remember walking home in floods of tears because exactly you said I've ruined this dog you know I've, I've messed up I've ruined this dog's life yeah. and of course now I know that's not the case at all there's so much that goes into or you know, has the potential to to cause these issues for dogs that it's really difficult to with any dog to just sort of point your finger at one thing it's what, you know, I'm, I'm i'm just thinking back right because i've ruined this dog thought is of of course i think like the one that we all have and i'm just wondering that the fact that you had so many dogs before was that of any comfort was that allowing you to think like well it probably wasn't all me or still like or was it still the case it's like okay it's probably me I think that helped a bit because you know I could look back at these previous dogs all of whom had been you know we could take them anywhere um they all had their little quirks as dogs do but they were easy to take anywhere you know you had no problems with them around people so I couldn't see what I had done differently for this to happen, which, which confused me. But I kind of came to the conclusion that there must have been something and I just couldn't see what it was, you know. Hmm. And then so the, the person telling you to shoot the dog, this was, you said, at six months old, kind of? Yeah, yeah he, was, he was six months old. Um, and he, this... This man wanted to come and say hello to him. And Finn sort of, he tucked himself behind me. And so I sort of stepped forward, hoping to stop the man coming to us. And he kept coming towards me and trying to go around me. And basically, I mean, Finn was right winding the lead around my legs because he wanted to get away from this man who wouldn't leave him alone. So, of course, in the end, all Finn could do was to shout at him because you know, this man wasn't reading his body language. He wasn't listening to me asking him to leave us alone. So... Finn, you know, he was cornered. He had no other way to communicate how he was feeling. So he did. He he kicked off. And, yeah, this guy said, is he always like that? I said, well, no, not quite like that. And that's when he came out with it. And I, I just, I had no comeback. I, there were no words. I couldn't even think straight. I cried all the way home. What did you make it mean that he said that? Because to be honest, I'm already impressed that you were trying to to block the person. Like when Rusty was six months old, I wouldn't like I wouldn't even have had the notion to do that. Like to you know like stand up for my dog. So so you did that. Still the okay. Still the guy says that. Like I'm already like I said like I'm already impressed with you trying to block the guy, but you go home having been told that. And then what did you make it mean about you? I felt like a complete and total failure who should never have another dog in her life. You know, it just, at, at that point, all that prior experience meant absolutely nothing. Yeah, I must have just been lucky with every dog that I'd had before. All the dog, you know, we, we bred a couple of litters. They all turned out okay, but that, I must have just been lucky. So hmm. That's actually where my other interest in imposter syndrome started to pop up. I think that's where that started. Um, cause I, I did have a huge wardrobe imposter syndrome about my ability with dogs 
And I think that would have continued to got worse if I hadn't, through the people who I'd found to, who were supporting me, with as I learned about reactivity, I actually I stumbled across a course for, from an education provider over here. Um, and it was on canine reactive behaviours and I enrolled on that and that's where I started learning. And that has become a definite love now. I am, I'm a behaviour geek. I am an absolute dog training nerd. Love it. You know, I'm, I haven't stopped studying in five years. (laughs) I I haven't stopped studying in five years. I've just been solidly studying dogs, writing about dogs, thinking about dogs. So was this like the six month moment and you come home and then was that like, okay, now I'm going to study or what was there still some kind of space in between? So you come home thinking like, okay, I'm like, I must've gotten lucky with lucky, sorry, with the previous dogs. Um, that happened, and then what? that happened in the October and it was the March I enrolled on the course. So I, I sort of, I spent kind of six months doing like my own research and, and looking up because it was a couple of months after that happened that I stumbled across this term reactive dog. And I started reading this. I can't even remember where I found this article now, but it had this kind of list of potential behaviors. And I'm reading down this list going tick, tick, tick. Because he is afraid of dogs. He's afraid of people he doesn't know. He's not great with noises. Children terrify him. He can't be anywhere near children. Um, We got him past this thing of chasing cars. He's he's frightened of sheep, which is hilarious in a border collie. It's well, it's hilarious now. He's he has got a lot better with it, but he is frightened of anything bigger than him. But he's also frightened of baby lambs because I don't know whether he thinks they're plotting to take over the world or something. But he's very suspicious of baby lambs. But for a long time, it did feel like just the whole world terrified him. He had five people that he liked and could relax with. Uh, now he has seven five years later it's a long slow process we are getting there introducing him to more people he's nearly got an eighth now we're getting there introducing him to somebody else but it is a long slow process so you know it it affects it has an effect on life every single day i'm just thinking i can't recall like the moment that i heard the term reactive but what did you think was going on before you found out like even that the word reactive was used to describe a certain type of dog i'd worked out that he was scared because he would never although he would he could look really aggressive and sort of front up and go forward he'd never get right up close to something he'd get to a couple of meters away and then he'd back off and you could see that his his body language is always backwards so I, I could tell that he was scared but that was about as far as as I could analyze it I couldn't sort of see anything else than the fear why he was scared I didn't know and why it come out in that way I didn't know until I started finding these articles and then then it just all fell into place and you said five people he can and now almost eight that he can 
you know, like be around? Yeah, for a long time, it was me, my husband, my mum, my brother and my sister. And with very long, slow introductions, he is now happy with my mother-in-law. And we're introducing him to my sister-in-law as well. But so this, this is five years down the road of, of work. He's never going to, to be an easy or a normal dog. But we're slowly expanding his world. But what has that done to your family life? Like, you know, like taking five years for him to be able to accept your parents-in-law. Like- he's been okay with my mum, my sister and one brother his whole life. He's known them since he was a puppy. Um, I'm not a very social person anyway. So actually it's, it's not made too much of a difference from that perspective um and we're very fortunate in that the people who he is comfortable with my mum and my sister if we have to go somewhere and do something that involves other people they'll they quite happily they puppy sit for us it has meant making some major changes in life to accommodate him but I, i sat and thought about it once for a long time about quite what his life would be like now if he wasn't here with us and I think it would probably be quite unhappy and very short because he is very complicated he is very worried about things still he's a lot better than he was but he is still very worried by a lot of life and I think a lot of people wouldn't have the setup that would work for him. I'm fortunate in that I work from home. I work for myself so I can cater for him in my everyday life. It's not a problem. So what are some of the changes that you've made to accommodate him? I spend part of my time. um, We live next door to my mum, who is elderly and has sort of care needs and I used to take her to all her appointments go in with her he is not great at being left so I now drop her off outside the door and drive around till she phones me to pick her up because I can't leave him at home because he will howl the place down so as you know as well as sort of being scared of things he does have some separation issues And I also call him my FOMO dog. He has massive fear of missing out because he thinks that if we go out of the house without him, we're doing something fun and he's not invited. And he just, no. (laughs) He has to be where we are doing what we do. Velcro dog. Yeah. Yeah. He's sleeping down here by my feet now. Tied himself out squeaking toys. (laughs) So have you ever been resentful of making changes? When, when we first sort of realised the scale of what we had to do, I remember sitting there one day and thinking, I think he was, he was about two at the time, so I'm sitting there thinking, I've got 10 or 12 years of this, of not being able to go for a walk other than at four o'clock in the morning, not being able to go and do things. And, yeah, for, for a brief while, I didn't resent him, but I resented what it meant for my life. But in the time since then, he has shown that he is very much worth it. I mean, the last 
six months, he's five now. In the last six months, he has started to come on so far. He really is, you know, we still, he's still worried by meeting people and dogs outside, but he can, as long as we've got some distance, he can sort of have a look at them, see where they are, see what they're doing, and then we can turn and go in a different direction rather than him just kicking off straight away. We can now walk past somebody on the other side of the road. So we can go for a walk around our little local block without too many dramas. Um, he really, he tries actually, you can see him trying so hard to cope with the life. He, he used to have a thing about the television, certain things on, on the screen, like if there are any animals or he hated people in like period dress. If you were watching something with the Tudors with the big rough collars, mm -hmm. he'd throw himself at the telly. He would absolutely he'd just snarl, bark, lunge at the TV screen. And he has actually now, if there's something on the screen that he doesn't like, he comes and sits on the sofa next to me and pours my arm until I rub his ears. And all the while I'm doing that, he can ignore what's happening on the screen. So he's learned, he comes to us and lets us know when he needs comfort. That's massive. It's huge. It really is huge. And that is in the last six months. He's actually, he started to realize that he can choose to not fixate on the thing but he can come to us and ask and we will give him fuss and comfort so what do you think was the main contributor to that change is there Some even it, something I you think... can point out or is it a gradual thing he's been improving probably the last year or so i've been putting in a lot more work with just finding quiet time to take him sort of out in the neighborhood and just gradually showing him a bit more and a bit more. I think some of it is his age. He he's a quite slow maturing dog, but since he's reached the age of five, he seems he's sort of moved from almost like an overgrown teenager to being sort of a proper grown up dog. And he's, he still has his mad pucky moments, but in his behaviour with things that worry him, he seems to have really settled down as, as he's got just that little bit older. Um, I think possibly also it's, it's been the consistency in, in letting him know that he can come to us for comfort. Actually, this is really interesting because you're making me think about this. I've never really thought about it before. <laughs> but he's always been very nervous of noises outside, like if you hear car doors. And probably about eight or nine months ago, rather than trying to get him to stop barking, I started saying thank you. So he'd bark and I would say to him, great, thank you, done your job, I've got it from here. And I think that sort of combination of letting him do what he feels he needs to to be safe, so the barking, and then letting him know that I've got it from there, it's, it's allowed him to relax a little bit. Because he, he has come to trust us. He knows that we will keep him safe. He knows that we have his back. What changed uh, the, the in, best... your, in your mindset to allow to allow that to make that change for you like what happened there 
Was that just like, oh, I'm trying different things or something more profound? No, it was something that I'd, I'd read about and I didn't actually even intend to do it. It just, I read about it. I think it was only like the, the day before this happened and there was a van door that, that slammed outside and he jumped off the sofa and went running to the door barking. And I just, without thinking about it, just called out, okay, thank you. I've got it. And he came back. He took himself to where the treats live, waited for his treat because I said thank you and thank you means treats. And then he took himself to his bed and settled down and went to sleep. So we've, we've just carried on with that, with the, with the reinforcing it, so that um, you know, we're not trying to stifle him letting us know that he's worried. But once he's let us know that he's worried, we've got him to understand that we've got him from there. We will sort it out. If he comes and tells us, it's exactly the same thing with him coming for comfort. If he comes and tells us that there's something wrong, then he doesn't have to worry. He doesn't have to be vigilant because we've got it. It's, it's something the whole family's starting to do with him now. And because I'm always curious, like how that works, right? From, from the human perspective also. Like f- from going to um, not being resentful of, of him, as you said, but resentful of what it meant for your life to now um, where you're sort of more... I want to say more in a helping, helping mode, maybe of helping him and saying, Hey, got it. You know, like, it's okay for you to be afraid. Like what, like what happened in between there? Like what, what are the things that changed? As well as learning about the reactive behaviors, I started to learn more about dog training and behavior. And I learned how the, the best methods to use. Um, I, I make no secret of the fact that I am a crossover trainer. I've never used uh, this, the really nasty aversive. I've never used a prong. I've never used an e-collar. I grew up in the 1980s, and I'm not sure if you, you had her over there, but those were the days of Barbara Woodhouse on the TV, training dogs. Uh, every, every dog was in a choke chain. Yeah. Every, every dog. I mean, I, I remember my old Malinois being in a, in a choke chain. Mm. And I remember it, like, I, I, I even remember that there was no scruff on her neck because of all the, like, all the pulling. So the hair would mm. just kind of disappear. Mm. And that was the way you did it. Like, the most prominent, like, we didn't have, like, Barbara, you said. Mm. Um, like, we, we had Martin House. Dutch people will know him. And He's actually like his dog schools have become completely force free now. Um, so again, somebody who, who crossed over, but yeah, that was just the way you did it. You know, like they're punishment based training. That's what you did. Like there was no, yeah. I, I didn't even know of the alternative back then. I think. No, we, I mean, we'd always used kind of positive elements. Uh, we used a lot of praise. Um, we'd never used food before. And this, I swear, he is a Labrador in disguise because his whole world revolves around food. I have never known anything like it. He would eat 24 hours a day if I let him. So I started studying. I found this 
um, this education provider, Canine Principles, and I started working through some of their courses. And that introduced me to a different way of speaking about dogs and dog training. It introduced me to the idea of canine coaching and working through cooperation and using the, the positive methods and also the, the concept of problem solving for dogs and letting them work things out for themselves, which is great for reactive dogs because it's so fantastic for their confidence and their resilience. And I still remember the very first, I got a clicker. Never done clicker training before. I'd not even heard of clicker training. And I got some treats because I knew he liked treats. And with one bag of treats, I've been sent a free clicker. I was like, oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll give this a go. So I did a quick sort of bit of Googling to find out what I was supposed to do and found out about, you know, charging the clicker. And so I sat there with my dog and I went click and dropped a treat, click and dropped a treat. And all of a sudden there's this puppy sitting there staring at the clicker. Just absolutely. In three repetitions, he had got the hang of the clicker. He, and yeah, he was just staring at it like he could make me click it with his mind. Yeah, the border collie stare to the clicker. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I thought, well, this is good. Okay, we'll, we'll try doing something. And I think what's the first thing I taught him to do? Touch his nose to a door. So we walked over to this dresser behind me, actually, walked over the door of that. And I just put my finger against the door and he just kind of followed my finger, touched his nose on the door. Of course, I clicked and that was it. He was round and staring at the treat pouch. And I was I was just absolutely hooked on clicker training after that. Um, and then, yeah, then I found out all about the idea of the free shaping and teaching him to yeah. do different things. And... I'd always enjoyed the process of working with dogs to teach them things, but this took it to another level because this dog, you know, as soon as I pick the clicker up, he is in front of me, absolutely in work mood. Right. What are we doing today? He loves it. And my dogs had always enjoyed working sheep, but I had never seen the enthusiasm that I see on his face when he sees me pick up the treat pouch and the clicker. He just absolutely adores working and learning new things and trying new things. It was an absolute revelation to me. So then did things like happen quickly from there on? Yeah, I'd, I've been made redundant from, from my job. The, the, I used to work in a um, laboratory as well as on the farm. We left the farm. And I'd gone full time working in this this laboratory and the company closed down. So. I was sort of trying to work out what to do. I ended up going working somewhere sort of part time so that I could help my mum with her health issues and so on. And. I came out one day with this, this sentence of I'm going to write a book. And it was to my tutor, my mentor at Canine Principal Sally. I said to her, I'm going to write a book. And she said, right, go on then. And yeah, then I thought, what the hell are you thinking of? And I wrote a book. And it's, but that article 
that that you came across that that was kind of the starting point for the book um I sort of I went on from from there and it was along the same sort of lines of supporting people who well, this, are living the topic with these of dogs. this book was also it yeah. was directed at guardians of yes of, of yeah, it's, it's actually called a reactive dog guardian's handbook um, because it sort of takes you through the whole process of working out that your dog is having these problems and, you know, sort of a bit of what's going on inside the dog and kind of like the, the methods that we can use to try and help them and the importance of finding support for yourself. So it's sort of... I'm getting curious because before you mentioned imposter syndrome and that, you know, like thinking there might've been something wrong with you or that you just got lucky with your previous dogs. And now you're writing a a book about how to deal with reactive dogs. I'm just thinking like, if there's anything that can trigger imposter syndrome, it's like, who am I to write a book for other people about this? Oh, I, I asked Sally that question and she said, you're there, you're living it. So who better to write a book from that perspective than someone who's there and living it, which, you know, I wasn't overly sure that I believed it, but I wrote the book um, and it came out 2019. That one came out. Um, and yeah, it, it was sort of quite well received. It still sells now. It, it's, it's a handy little book for people who are just sort of stumbling across this whole concept and have no idea what's going on and just they want some reassurance that there are people that understand there are things that we can do um and yeah that that kind of started me off i've 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 now written four books in total i'm working on numbers five and six at the moment (laughs) oh my goodness so um like do you want to name the titles already uh yeah, the Can you, are you allowed one, to name titles of the new books coming out already or not? Will this be like I, I have actually I have mentioned them to a few people. So the ones that I've already written that are out is there's Fight or Fright, a reactive dog guardian's handbook, which was the first one. Then I wrote one on imposter syndrome, which is called Conquering Confidence. And then the last book that I actually released serious book I wrote a little funny one called conversations with collies which is various events from my life with the dogs over the years but with the dog side of the conversation added in I actually gave my dogs voices right. and um, <laughs> reconstructed conversations and my dogs are quite sarcastic I think I'm, I'm a bit daft I think because <laughs> that's just how the conversations came out and then the last one Again, it was on the topic of of reactive behaviours, but a lot more in depth in the science. And that's called Understanding Reactive Dogs, Why Dogs React and How to Help, which that came out last year. Yes, last year. Um, and again, that that has proved quite popular. They've it's um seems to have made its way over to the, the States now. They, they seem to have discovered it over there, which is quite nice. So it's sort of getting out there a bit. So we're going to definitely um, have to link to those in the show notes, people. You don't have to take out your pen and paper. We'll just <laughs> we'll provide links. Like, don't pull over. Don't stop the car. It'll be okay. It'll be in those. It'll be in the show notes, please. And I, this dog has utterly revolutionized my life because my entire life now revolves around dogs. Not just this dog, um, but I. The more that I studied, 
I then actually went on to become a tutor with the company that I started out studying with canine principles and I also went into collaboration on a website with the owner of canine principles called good guardianship and I have actually now ventured out on that on my own um, and that is all aimed at helping people to have better relationships with their dogs and the next book that I have got coming out is linked with that and it's called building the bond uh, how to live harmoniously with your dog and it's all about things to think about and activities that we can do to increase the bond that we have with our dogs so it's including things like understanding their language consent testing and then a lot of the things that you you know you tend to be familiar with when you have the complex dogs such as you know the sniffing uh, enrichment activities food-based enrichment all these kinds of things it, it's kind of a, a collection all of those together in one place to to help people have ideas of things to do with and for their dogs so if you had to come up with like the one thing that improved the relationship that you have with your dog what would you say it is what would you say the shift was I think the thing that made the biggest difference for us initially was discovering the concept of trigger stacking and rest days, like decompression days. Mm -hmm. Because one of the first things that we're told about dogs is that they have to go for a walk every day, at least once. So, you know, as sort of trying to be a good guardian to your dog, you take them out for their walks. And if you are living somewhere where you are surrounded by quite a few people, you every day you're exposing them to stress. If if these are their triggers, like with Finn, you know, we'd go out every day, we'd see people with dogs or people would be too close. And he just he never had a chance to really relax and, and get rid of all that stress. So it was it was the concept of actually, I don't have to take him out every day. If he's had a rough walk, we can have a day at home and he can. You know, we can play games in the garden, we can do forage mats, we can do you know, trick training, we can do all these things at home that keep him mentally stimulated. I think that, that's the key for us actually was finding out that mental stimulation for him was every bit as important as physical exercise. Okay, so yeah. I have a question about that because I want to know how easy kind of that was for you because that is going against societal conditioning you know this idea of the ne dogs needing a dog walk is so ingrained i know it is super ingrained for me as well especially now that rusty has back issues and um we can only do very short walks um okay so how to phrase this so even though you kind of know intellectually that, you know, like it is not necessary after a couple of people have told you probably, and you've read articles about it. Um, there is still that conditioning in the back of your brain. And I am just wondering like, how easy was it for you to let go of that thought? Or was there still that gnawing little voice going like, are you sure? Is there a tip or trick to you know, like silence that voice. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I moved to, we, we got to the point where we were walking at four o'clock in the morning because that was the only way to go out for a walk and have, well, even then we couldn't guarantee we wouldn't meet anybody. Um, and I don't know if it was so much the fact that I kind of realised that it was okay. It was more the fact that it was November, four o'clock on a November morning. It was pouring down with rain. I was soaking wet. I was freezing cold. Finn was not enjoying the last bit of the walk home because he was, he looked like a drowned rat. He was absolutely drenched. And we were, we were squelching home. And we got in and sort of dried both of us off. And I just looked at him and went, if it's like that in the morning, we're not going. And we didn't. And it felt very strange. It did feel really, really strange. But what helped was he didn't actually look to go for a walk. Yeah, we, we sort of, we went and played out in the garden and we came back inside and he just popped himself up on the sofa and went to sleep. And that was him quite happy for the day. And in actual fact, for that first time, we actually, I think it was three or four days that we actually, we didn't go for a walk just to, to really let him lose all of those stress hormones. And this and was at it, that time, was that like an active decision or was this also like, okay, the weather's so crap and it seems like you don't mind. So let's keep at it. The first day, probably first two days, the weather was really, really bad. Um, and I think the third day I kind of, I woke up thinking, well, I probably ought to take him for a walk. And I looked at him and he was upside down on my bed, snoring, you know, awful paws in the air. Absolutely. Fast asleep, snoring, didn't care, did not want to get out of bed. So, okay, he's happy. You know, he'll tell me if he's not happy. He'll tell me if he wants to go out. If he wants to go for a walk, he lets me know. He, he just sits behind me and goes, oh, oh, until I take him for a walk. So he's very good at communicating what he wants. And he just, he wasn't bothered. And then I think it was the fourth day we went back out again. And again, we went early in the morning just, you know, because I didn't want to ruin all of that work. I haven't been straight stressed again, but it was dry. And he bounced out of the door without a care in the world. We had a lovely walk. And to this day, now we will always have at least one day a week where we rest. Just, you know, because he is a lot better, but there are still things that worries him out on walks. And I watch his body language very closely and we, we will still have those built-in breaks just to, for both of us, for both of our stress levels. Just we, you know, a day where we just hang out at home, we play in the garden, we do treasure hunts around the house. You know, he, he will sit and wait in the kitchen while I hide food all around the house, and then he has great fun going and finding it. Cool. And that keeps him happy. Yeah, so, so the thing was actually, yeah, the, or the question that I had was like, was it, um, like, were you aware that those were, or that you, oh, sometimes my speech really, that you were doing this decompression thing um like when you know like the first two days with the bad weather had you heard of the concept of decompression at that time already or that was it an accident and then you kind of found out oh this is like trigger stacking and this is what decompression is about or was it maybe intertwined in combination it was kind of intertwined i had read about about the whole idea of of the breaks from walks um and i think it was probably on on the second day of it being really disgusting and think you know 
really don't want to go out in that. And I thought, oh, hang on, I read something about this. And I went and found it and thought, well, okay, let's let's give it a try. Let's see how he gets on. And it showed really clearly in him, in his behaviour, in his body language, everything, just how much those days benefited him. I'm just, I, I, I mean, I do, I love that. I just, I think it's just so hard to silence that, that voice of like, I, I have to, I have to do this because that's what you're supposed to do. And I think obviously what does help is what, when you then get evidence that it is working, you know, that your dog is calmer and that then the next time they're able to cope better. Do, do you have any other examples of, of things like that, that, you know, we're going against societal conditioning, I want to say, and that you're now thinking like, yeah, but this is what we're doing because this is what's helping my dog. Um, I very much learned to advocate for my dog because Finn is quite a striking looking dog. Uh, he's, I've seen he's that. A blue, <laughs> he's a blue male and they do tend to get quite a lot of attention. And when people see a good looking dog, they want to come and say hello, which of course is his absolute yeah. worst nightmare. He, you know, but there is this kind of expectation in society that a good dog is one that anybody can come and say hello to. Anybody can come and fuss, you know, it, it's, it's sort of like dogs are there for anybody to, to fuss over whenever they want to. And I actually, I had to learn to say, no and that no is actually a complete sentence when someone says can I come and pet your dog no that's all that you have to say but it's so ingrained in it do you ever find yourself apologizing for your dog not anymore but I work <laughs> with my clients on that a lot because the question is then why why do you apologize you know because It says something about you, about how you want to be perceived. It is, it's kind of a way of, of people-pleasing. Yeah, I, I used to be exactly the same. I used to apologize for him, and I will still tell people why he is the way he is, but I, I don't frame it in that way anymore. I don't apologize. If he does happen to growl or bark at somebody, I'll just go, he's scared of people he doesn't know. I'll move away. Or could you back off? And... Most people around here now do. They do. You get the occasional one. I remember I was coming back from a walk one day and there was this man walking down. It's always men. For some reason, it's always men that this has happened with. He was walking down the road towards us and there was only pavement on one side of the road. So it's quite a quiet country road. So I moved Finn off and we walked sort of down the middle of the road. So we had parked cars between us and this man who then promptly came out around the cars to walk towards us. And he oh, said, you look, you look very anxious there with your anxious dog. But yeah, he doesn't like people he doesn't know. That's why I'm moving away from you. No, but you look very anxious, he said, he's walking towards us. Yeah. Yes, because he doesn't know you and he's scared of people he doesn't know. But why are you so anxious? Because you're annoying my dog. Oh, I didn't actually say that. But <laughs> Might need a beep of what I actually said, because it just, he wasn't listening. He refused to listen. And ever since then, you know, I, I, I will actually physically block people from getting near 
Finn now. He he actually has learned that he can stand behind me and I will physically get in the way. The, the most, well, the one that flunked me the most was we took him to the vets for his vaccinations one year, um, which again, he absolutely hates going to the vets because it's people he doesn't know, all the strange smells. So whenever we have to take him to the vets, both I and my husband go with him so that, you know, you've always got one of us holding him and one yeah. that can like be a barrier. And he got his muzzle on and we took him to the, the waiting area and we found the quietest corner we could for him. So you've got, he was sat on one side of my husband and like, the wall the other side. And then I was sat in between them and where anybody else was. And there was a TV screen in this vet's waiting room and up popped an image of a cat. Now, cats are Finn's nemesis. I don't know why he cannot stand cats. All cats must die. It's very recognisable. Yeah. Yeah. So, of course, he kicked off barking at this image of a cat. And this woman that was there, she looked around and she went, oh, bless him. And she started to walk towards him. And he's like, he's foaming at the mouth by this point. He's got his basket muzzle on, you know. And I said to her, could you please not? He's not good with people he doesn't know. And she completely ignored me and was making a beeline straight towards me. Of course, by this point, he'd seen her and was kicking off because yep. she was getting that too close. Of- and I, I physically had to get up and body block her. I actually had to physically push her back with my shoulder because she was determined she was going to go and make a fuss of this, this poor dog who was, he was shouting as loud as he possibly could, leave me alone. And it, it just didn't appear to, to go in at all. Did you make an excuse for body blocking her, I wonder? No. <laughs> Not that, no. <laughs> I had got well past that stage by then. But I think I this, this comes back to, again, like, and, and that's why I'm glad I asked you, to this societal conditioning of like this picture that we have of what a good dog is supposed to do to be able, what, and what we are supposed to be able to do to them. And then as long as we hold on to that belief or as long as we don't sort of overwrite that, I always tell my people like counter condition our own beliefs, then that's when we make the excuses because when, as, as long as we believe that our dog is not a good dog, then we feel the need to apologize for them for not fitting that ideal mold of what a good dog is supposed to be and and as soon as your brain starts to really accept i think after time that i want to say old dogs are good dogs then the need um to make excuses goes away and i think like when you when you find yourself making excuses that's always a good time to check in and like oh why am i why am i saying that why am am i doing that and not what a lot of like people do is then to beat themselves up even more for having made the excuse and like, Oh, I'm that person that makes excuses. And I'm that like, that sucks. And I shouldn't be that person. No, not, not that part, but just the part where you kind of go like, Oh, that's interesting. I'm making an excuse. Where is that coming from? But the, yeah, the good dog. It's a good dog image. I wish I could (laughs) sort of erase that from people's collective. Yeah, absolutely. I really wish that we could reframe the whole idea of what a normal dog is. Because people think of a normal dog as being like the good dog, the one who you can take anywhere, you know, 
can be fussed by anybody, never misbehaves, basically has no personality. And I've always quite liked quirky dogs. My dogs have all had their little quirks. Uh, We had one working sheepdog who thought that people were an inconvenience and just got in the way of her herding sheep. She'd take them where she thought they wanted to go. (laughs) And you just had to wait until she worked out that you actually wanted them over there. She was brilliant. Um, The great thing with her was there was one day the sheep had all got out and we were all away. And my sister-in-law had come up to look after her horse and she was heavily pregnant at the time. And she discovered the sheep were out and she found a hole in the hedge where the the sheep had got through. So she went and got Cass and she went, go and get the sheep back. And that dog did. She went and found the sheep and she brought them back home because she knew where they were supposed to be. Um, But she did generally view people as an inconvenience. (laughs) She just wanted to do her thing. But especially since having Finn, I like my dogs to be their authentic selves. And that might not be what people want a dog to be. That might not be what other people want to see. I don't care because he's my dog and I just want him to be who he is. And I will do anything that I can to help him be who he is and be happy. That's all that matters to me. I think that maybe might be a nice segue because you you mentioned that you had also um, taken Kim Brophy's course. Um, yes. And I yeah. think that emphasizes heavily like letting the dogs be who they are, who they truly are. Yeah. The way Kim puts it that I absolutely love is you're meeting the dog where they're at. So you know, you're looking at all of these factors that make this dog who they are and being that that combination of the learning the environment the genetics and the self and it's putting the whole picture together and for the people as well because you know people have these these four legs as well and it's all about looking at the whole family unit and how everyone fits together and how everyone can be happy i think The thing that that really got me taking Kim's course is so many of the things were were ways I'd started to think already. And I just found myself sitting there just going, yeah, yeah. And there was so much of it that it was just, it was kind of confirming these thoughts. I hadn't sort of quite got to that extent yet, but my thinking was tending in that way. And, you know, then here was this course saying, yeah, that's absolutely how we should be looking at things. And... Funnily enough, I was having a conversation with someone the other day about like breed traits. Mm-hmm. I've always had collies. I love collies. I love their brains. I just, I, you know, I love the way they think, the way they do things, the way that they want to be with you. And we need to be doing more to communicate to people what these different types of dogs need, because not every dog is going to fit in every family. And that's where we can have a lot of these issues that come up. Um, it's like collies and the herding dogs, you quite often see a lot of them mentioned as reactive. And then you see them like in heavily urbanized areas, which for some of them will fit absolutely fine. But for others, it's a tricky environment for them to start with. And if you then have these other factors that can come in, it's it's not going to make it easy for everyone to be happy in that situation. 
do you think um because um, just because you mentioned that it's it's not easy for everyone to be happy in that situation and i think um well first off i don't always think that we should like all be happy all the time <laughs> um that's not life but i think just not being judgmental of either yourself or your dog when you're not happy that helps a lot and i like that you said that um Kim Brophy's course is about like meeting your dog where they're at, but also meeting yourself where you're at. And I'm wondering if that is something that you are now more easily able to do, like meet yourself where you're at, or is there still sometimes guilt or beating yourself up involved? Like, I feel you're a very down to earth person just talking to you like that, but I'm, I'm just wondering if that is um, just, like not something you do, you're just naturally um, like good at meeting yourself where you're at or whether that's also um, a learned skill. I, I didn't used to be. Um, I used to beat myself up a lot. But as I've learned more about the whole reactive behaviors, you know, how learning happens, how behaviors develop, and the fact that yeah, we're mammals, the systems work in the same way as in us as in the dogs. And I've actually, I've learned to see my own stress, my own triggers, my own trigger stacking. I've learned how to read myself a lot better in exactly the same way as I've learned to read dogs better, which has actually, it's let me view it from both sides. So there are days where Finn would probably quite enjoy going for a walk, but I know I'm not in the right kind of mental place to go for our normal walk around the block so we might wait until late evening and go to there's, there's a park a few minutes drive away that tends to be quite quiet in the evening so we might go up there for a, a quiet wander around because I know that trying to do our normal thing wouldn't work for me on that day so yeah it's, it's made me a lot better at thinking about myself and my own mood and you know my own stress levels which has really helped. And is this something you're now also incorporating in your work? Like you said, you are also helping people deal with imposter syndrome. Is like, is this what has led to that? Is this something that you're incorporating? Like just because how did that happen? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I started reading up on imposter syndrome because I was asked to produce a short course for somebody, which um, really sort of set my imposter syndrome going because, you know, who am I to write courses for other people on things? Um, it's, it was a short workshop on reactive dogs. And I sort of I got went down this rabbit hole of imposter syndrome and I spent sort of like two or three months basically doing very little other than reading about imposter syndrome. And I said, said to a friend, you know, I've done all this reading, but I'm not quite sure what to do with it now. And she said, well, write a course on it. So I wrote a workshop on what I'd learned about imposter syndrome, which then moved into a book. And now it has moved onto, I actually have a Facebook group for, which is specifically for imposter syndrome for dog people, whether they're professionals or dog guardians. 
Um, and one of the, the very strong themes in that is this concept of forgiveness of self because mistakes happen, things don't go right. It is part of human nature and the way the world works. And it's about learning to let go of those things. So take the learning opportunities, but don't hold on to that guilt about things going wrong because things do go wrong. I mean, I used to be the absolute worst for obsessing over mistakes that I made like 20 years ago, which is the least useful thing on the face of the earth to do. And I've had to learn to let that go because it doesn't serve a purpose. It doesn't help me be better at what I'm doing now. I, w- I want to say it actually creates the opposite, right? It prevents, it really prevents growth. So what would you, what would you say helps if people say like, okay, I want to be that person who can let go of mistakes more easily, what would you tell them? I tend to tell people to take the positives that they can from it. So if it has shown something that they could work on, um, so improve their knowledge or improve skills or add another skill, make a plan to deal with that and then put it aside until you can actually do it and not to let the things that you can't do or can't do as well as you would like stop you doing the things you can do because that's what the, that sort of thinking can do you get obsessed with thinking about the things that have gone wrong and the things that you can't do as well as you'd like that you kind of forget to think about the things that you can do i love that i think we're very much in line i think our, our kind of work is um like what i do as a coach for for guardians of of challenging dogs is very much focuses on that. Maybe I come from a slightly different angle, but I love that there are more people out there now who are focusing on this and on, on the guardian and how hard it can be. And like, like you wrote in the article on the emotional um, roller coaster and that there's people out there helping. Um, I think this is a nice way because I do kind of want to be mindful of the time a little bit, and I'm sure we could talk for another hour. Um, but I just want to move to like the three words that I ask everyone to comment on at the end of an episode uh, when it comes to life with their dog or dogs and their expectation, frustration, and celebration. What comes up for you? Oh, that's a really good question, isn't it? I think frustration for me probably we we sort of go back to that whole societal expectations. That is what I find most frustrating, not just from the point of view of the complex dogs, but dogs in general, because what is it expected of your normal average dog is not necessarily very representative of who a dog is. So, yeah, that that would be my frustration. Expectation. I think probably enjoyment. I think my expectation is that I will enjoy my time with my dog because... Yeah, there there may be difficult days with him, but they don't live very long, really, do they? So, so yeah, 
yeah, my expectation is that we will enjoy our life together. Celebration. I'm a really big believer in celebrating the little things, the little steps, especially when it comes to these complex dogs. That thing of being able to be a meter closer to a trigger. You know, that, that's a great thing to celebrate. And it can feel really overwhelming with a reactive dog to look at me and think, you know, it's never going to be better. But when you add up those little steps, you get to this massive, massive improvement. And you find yourself looking back and thinking, wow, you know, that, that one meter a week, you know, give it six months and you're a lot closer. So yeah, celebrate the small steps because they do add up into the, into the larger improvements. I, I kind of love that. And I kind of also love that you linked expectation to joy because when your expectation is to enjoy life with your dog, that mindset helps you like find those points where you can celebrate. It's like, I'm going to have fun. I'm going to love being with this dog and I'm going to find every which way I can to, to celebrate. I, yeah, we have this, this routine of, um, he's, he's very good actually, because I, you know, I, my desk is set up at home. I work at home and he's generally quite good about not bugging me while I work because we have this routine that the last half an hour of every day is cuddle time on the sofa. So the last half an hour, every single day before we go to bed, just the pair of us on the side, he'll be upside down using my leg as a pillow and I'm just scratching his chest. And that's how we spend our last half an hour every day. And it's, it's just the most amazing way to end the day. It's just bliss. I was going to say, yeah. Okay. There's some people listening now that are jealous that have the aloof dogs and are like, I wish I had that, but people come on. I love that. I love that you and Finn have that. Our previous dog, he, he was like that. He was quite aloof. You know, the most he might do is come and lay by your foot, but he really wasn't into the whole fuss thing. So having a cuddler is quite nice in comparison. Yeah. So, um, like we've only like, I feel like we've only scratched the surface on some of the things that um, you're doing and the work that you're doing. And definitely we're going to link to all of the things that you've mentioned already and your books. Um, But what if people want to get in touch with you? Like, where do they find you? What's the best way to find you? Um, I do have a website, which is jgurden.com. Or people that are on Facebook can find me either at Jay Gurdon or Blue Mile Minion. Probably the easiest ways to find me. Blue Mile Minion. Yeah, Blue Mile Minion will find me on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Perfect. And like like I said earlier, people, you don't have to pull over. Like there, all of this will be in the show notes. Um, you will be able to see some really cute pictures of Finn and see why strangers have such a hard time staying away from him. Um, Jay, I really want to thank you for spontaneously agreeing to come on this podcast. And also, I want to really thank you for being an advocate um, for for our dogs in general, for having written that article that resonates with so many people. Um, yeah, just just thank you. Oh, I really enjoyed, enjoyed being here.
You can find a link to the website with the show notes through either Instagram at the Russ Cattle Dog or through our Facebook group with the same name as the podcast, Rough Around the Edges. If you would like to come on the show and share your story with us, then you can also contact me through either of these channels. And last but not least, if you like listening to this podcast, then maybe consider leaving us a review on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the other platforms that you may be listening to this podcast on, because they help us get found in the listings, allowing us to reach more people and help them feel less alone.